Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today with our political uh, analysts, our political scientists, Wayne Moyer, Rosenfield Professor and Professor of Political Science at Grinnell College. Hello, Wayne. Hi, Ben. Adrian Gathman joins us once again from Simpson College, where she's Assistant Professor of Political Science. Adrian, welcome back to you as well. Hi, thank you for having me. All right, we'll get your volume turned up there, <laughs> I'm sure, very quickly. And, of course, listeners are an important part of our uh, talk show during the noon hour, especially Politics Wednesday. If you'd like to join us, one 780 9100 That should be on your fridge or on your speed dial on your cell phone, one 780 9100. Never know when you want to chip in a question or a comment for Politics Day or any of our other uh, talk show days. Or email us river to river at iowapublicradio.org. I wonder if we could start uh, with the news yesterday out of Chicago. Mayor, Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, lost her bid for a second term. Uh, A resounding defeat, evidently, according to reports, widespread dissatisfaction from voters over her handling of crime and policing, Uh, this in the nation's third largest city. We have to remember four years ago, Lightfoot made history as the first black woman to be elected mayor of Chicago. And in that victory, she swept all 50 of the city's wards. Uh, Two candidates uh, emerged from yesterday's first round of voting to advance. Um, I'm wondering if we can go to you, Adrian, if we have your volume turned up, uh, the significance of the Lightfoot loss. Well, I think the writing was on the wall when it came to her loss for this election. Polling leading up to this initial election showed her in a third place position and showed a, a pretty close race for that second spot for the runoff in April. And it wasn't just conflicts about crime, but also Lightfoot came in immediately proceeding, immediately before the COVID pandemic, and so had to deal with that in terms of Mm -hmm. um, her mayoral position, and also had significant conflicts with the teachers union, which is who is supporting the person that actually came in second, Johnson, who will be a part of the runoff. And it seems that this uh, runoff election is setting itself up to be a battle between messaging about crime and order and support from the fraternal order of the police and messaging from the teachers union within the city of Chicago. Yeah, the last mayor uh, in Chicago to lose after one term, 1983, Jane Byrne. I wonder... Adrian, what does this tell us about voters' priorities in this heavily Democratic uh, urban center of the U.S.? So this is something we've seen in some other cities across the U.S. in their mayoral elections in the last couple of years as well, those in San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles. And so the question as we look forward, is what are the lanes that are left open for people to get elected? In this particular instance, Johnson, the person who came in second in this initial election, was seemingly running to the left 
of Lightfoot on a more liberal policy basis, while Vallis, the person who won, I think, 34% of the vote mm-hmm. in this initial election, is running more to the right of where Lightfoot is, noting that all of the candidates were running as Democrats. And this is self-proclaimed because it's a nonpartisan race. So I think it tells us that there's still... A, a place in the Democratic Party for a more moderate voice and for the more progressive voice. But somewhere in the middle is where Lightfoot was trying to run and it wasn't successful this time around. Yeah. Well, Wayne, do you have any thoughts uh, about this uh, defeat of uh, the incumbent uh, mayor in Chicago? I, I think this uh, indicates more of the trend that we've seen earlier of tougher action against crime, of stronger police. I think the idea of defunding the police is now weakened very considerably from uh, uh, what, it, what, what some of us heard over the summer. Uh, uh, a New York example and now Chicago. And the, and the more conservative candidate has more, far more votes than the very liberal candidate. Mm-hmm. Let's pivot from our neighbor Illinois to uh, Iowa here and talk about, if we could for a moment, uh, one measure that is part of Governor Reynolds' approximately 1,500-page bill aimed at streamlining state government agencies. Specifically, Governor Reynolds is proposing expanding the Iowa Attorney General's power to prosecute crimes. Uh, And we have to remember, we now have a new uh, attorney general, uh, Democrat Tom Miller. He served in that position for many decades, uh, replaced in the last election. Um, um, Republican Brenna Byrd, now Iowa's attorney general. Back to this bill, which would give the attorney general exclusive power to prosecute election-related crimes. And that removes that power from county attorneys who are elected in each county to decide, uh, you know, what crimes people will be charged with. Uh, now, the assistant attorney general, current uh, Dan Breitbart, uh, told lawmakers that would remove a potential conflict of interest with county officials who oversee elections. Um, and the Iowa County Attorneys Association said the group is opposed to that part of the bill. Now, of course, focusing on this because election law um, has been a big part of our recent elections. Uh, Adrian, what do you see happening here and, and how significant is it? I think this is coming from looking nationwide at where election prosecute, election, electoral crime prosecutions are occurring and who it is that's taking the power in that type of prosecution. And there's big questions then that surround the idea of prosecutorial discretion and who gets to make the choice as to whether or not to file charges. And the assistant attorney general is saying this is a move to remove that potential conflict of interest, which is interesting because when we look at other types of uh, crimes that are being prosecuted by county attorneys, when they perceive a conflict of interest, they ask the AG to step in. That's the traditional route that it's happened. And that is also being proposed to change in this 1500 page um, proposed legislation. And so within this election crime prosecution, the concern that people have that are pushing back against it, partially the Iowa Uh, County Attorneys Association, as well as some Democratic lawmakers, is that this places politics within the attorney general's office and 
makes it a more political office rather than potentially a justice-seeking office. And while the AG mm-hmm. is elected, we have typically seen it stay out of these more political-based conversations. Mm-hmm. If I'm, I'm understanding this right, it says the state attorney general, if this proposal would go through, and of course it hasn't, it's a proposal, that the uh, Iowa attorney general may intervene in a county attorney's prosecution of any crime, even if that county uh, attorney uh, does not request help. And that would be a change from the current state where the AG's office uh, asks uh, to prosecute a case if the attorney has a conflict of interest in that county or if there's a very serious or complicated case. Uh, Wayne, do you see uh, the, the basis for concern here? Or as, as uh, Adrian pointed out, the, the politics becoming part of uh, a larger part potentially here? Well, I think politics is a part of all of this. Uh, uh, Tom Miller was a Democrat. He deferred to county attorneys. Republican government governors were quite happy with that uh, because they had a Democratic attorney general. But now that Kim Reynolds has a Republican attorney general, you can see where she wants more control or wants more state control over prosecutions. Mm-hmm. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, Adrian Gathman um, of Simpson College, our political scientists on board as we uh, survey the political landscape, as we like to do on Wednesdays. Join us, 1-866-780-9100. Let's start this, and then in our next segment, uh, we'll continue on with it. Um, in uh, testimony made public Monday, tied to election company Dominion Voting Systems defamation lawsuit against Fox News, Rupert Murdoch admitted that some Fox TV hosts pushed election election falsehoods. Uh, the chairman of Fox News' parent company also said he wished that the network had done more to challenge false claims that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Now, we remember days ago, uh, evidence was made public that many Fox News hosts, the prominent hosts uh, and executives, doubted the veracity of fraud claims made on Fox programs by such people as Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell. Those are two lawyers connected with the former president. Uh, we saw a really uh, in- interesting uh, verbatim uh, private text messages uh, from Fox hosts, uh, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram. Um, so, so let's listen to uh, Howard Kurtz. He anchors media buzz on Fox News. This was Sunday. He said that his company is preventing him from discussing the $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox by Dominion Voting Systems. Uh, This is the company uh, linked to the baseless accusations of election fraud by former President Trump in the Fox News coverage. Let's listen to what he had to say on the air on Fox News. Some of you have been asking why I'm not covering the Dominion voting machines lawsuit against Fox involving the unproven claims of election fraud in 2020. And it's absolutely a fair question. I believe I should be covering it. It's a major media story, given my role here at Fox. But the company has decided that as part of the organization being sued, I can't talk about it or write about it, at least for now. I strongly disagree with that decision. But as an employee, I have to abide by it. And if that changes, I'll let you know. Okay, we have about a minute before we have to break. Uh, to you first on this, uh, Wayne, what does the court evidence made public up to now t- tell you uh, about what, uh, w- what's been revealed about sort of the inner workings of Fox News during our elections? 
Well, I think there's a very serious question of whether the executives of Fox News knowingly are in, are involved in the false reporting uh, of, of the election results. And to the extent that they're culpable, then that strengthens the suit uh, against Fox News. Um, uh, and uh, the evidence seems to indicate uh, uh, that they, in fact, at least could have stopped it, uh, but maybe were directly involved in the false news reporting. Okay, we'll get back to and have Adrian's view on this. Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, Adrian Gathman of Simpson College. Join us, 1-866-780-9100. It's a Politics Wednesday of River to River. I'm Ben Kiefer. Back in just a moment. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. We're back with more of River to River, a Politics Wednesday edition with Adrian Gathman of Simpson College and Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College. Join our conversation, one 780 9100 When we left off there before the break, we were talking about this um, this uh, lawsuit, uh, the company voting, uh, Dominion Voting Systems suing Fox News and the parent company Fox Corps. Uh, corporation for defamation seeking $1.6 billion, claiming that the network broadcast baseless allegations of election fraud in the 2020 elections. Now, uh, soon after Dominion's lawsuit, Fox filed a counterclaim alleging that Dominion can't prove its damages and claiming that it had filed the lawsuit to create headlines and discourage free speech. Adrian, I'd like your comment on this in a moment, but first, let's listen here uh, to a comment from David Folkenflik. We know him well here on Iowa Public Radio, reports on the media for NPR. He's covered Fox News for over 20 years. Last Friday, he was asked on PBS NewsHour what stood out for him about this episode. I think it is the most visceral and tangible proof uh, of one of the strongest criticisms of Fox, that it functions in many ways as a political operation and a business enterprise and wraps itself in the word news, uh, even with a cadre of journalists, some of whom very much believe in reporting things straight. I think you saw the lie being given to that. And I think that you saw the cynicism uh, and the uh, antagonism to the idea that they be held responsible, they, that they behave responsibly, uh, and that they had any obligation to the truth and the facts. The facts. That's usually where people find credibility and trust. Uh, in this case, they saw it only in telling people what they wanted to hear. NPR's David Folkenflik in a comment from last week. Adrian, give us your view of this, because uh, we, of course, don't know how this lawsuit will turn out. One point six billion dollars a lot of money even for fox corporation uh, is this likely to to change um, influence the news media environment for the le- uh, next election depending on the consequences here for fox news it could uh change what that environment looks like it's incredible this lawsuit has even made it to this point to be honest because defamation for public entities which is what dominion has been deemed is a very high standard to prove 
uh, Dominion has a very high standard to prove defamation in this case. They have to prove actual malice in which Fox News and Fox Corps, because they've filed against both, either uh, recklessly disregarded that these were false accusations or knowingly published false accusations. And so they had a reckless disregard for trying to find the truth under actual malice, or they knew it was false and still went forward with them. And typically this kind of standard means that cases don't even make it to the point of getting the kinds of depositions and filings that we've seen because it's such Mm -hmm. a high legal stake. So it might change some of the atmosphere, but I think it definitely will, uh, have Fox maybe pushing pause on some of the conversations they're having, which is likely why anchors there are not allowed to discuss this case right now, because Fox News and Fox Corporation does not want additional information that could be used against them in this lawsuit. Uh, Let's move to a related topic also involving Fox News. Yesterday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy defended his decision to give conservative TV host of Fox News, Tucker Carlson, access to roughly 40,000 hours of security footage from January 6th, 2021. This was, of course, the day the U.S. Capitol was attacked. He told reporters, McCarthy did, that the footage will soon be released broadly Uh, yesterday, and that his office is taking measures to address concerns about uh, security risks. Um, Some of his quotes are remarkable. It almost seems like the press is jealous, McCarthy said. This is a one-on-one interview with the Washington Post. Um, And that's interesting because every person in the press works off exclusives on certain things. Um, McCarthy characterized Carlson's style of journalism as opinion not news. Uh, Wayne, tell us what you think uh, of what's been happening here and the release of tens of thousands of hours of security footage, at least initially, exclusively to Tucker Carlson of Fox News. Well, it sort of gives Tucker Carlson a a chance to redo, if you would, the January 6th investigation results. And what he can do is cherry pick uh, from all of the evidence, from all of all of the news coverage, and and create a very different narrative uh, than came out from the committee that was investigating January six. Uh, uh, and so, what we may well end up with is two conflicting narratives in terms of what actually went on that day. Now, then, of course, the other media, when they get all of this as well, will be uh, reinvestigating it and try to identify what was cherry picked and 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 uh, the extent and and try to re- reconcile what the differences were between the what actually happened and what uh, ha- appears in t- from Tucker Carlson. Yeah, the Democrats denouncing McCarthy's decision to share this footage with Carlson. Um, we remember McCarthy has repeatedly downplayed the deadly violence that occurred on January 6th. Uh, Adrian, how might this shape or reshape January 6th, as Wayne inferred there, um, mentioned there, in the minds of some Americans? Uh, I think this will give Car- uh, Tucker Carlson the opportunity to, as 
Wayne pointed out, cherry pick the things that fit the narrative he has been running with about January 6th. And the narrative he's been running with is largely what his viewers already believe. So now he'll have some video evidence to support that. I'm not sure whether it's going to have an impact on broader perceptions of what is or what occurred on January 6th, because I think a lot of people have already potentially made up their mind about what happened that day. It's just going to confirm what people already believe or be rejected by those that view January 6th differently. Mm -hmm. Let's move to a Supreme Court um, case that was heard in oral arguments this week. Um, the Supreme Court's conservative majority uh, seemed, according to reports that we've taken in, very skeptical of the legality of the Biden administration's plan to wipe out more than $400 billion in student debt. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts indicated uh, that the administration had acted without sufficiently explicit congressional authorization to undertake one of the most ambitious and expensive executive actions in our nation's history. Uh, he said, violating the separation of powers uh, principles. Uh, here's some audio from Justice Neil Gorsuch, also a conservative, raising the issue of the fairness of canceling student loan debt for some borrowers, not others, including people who have paid their loans and others who were not eligible. What I think they argue that is missing is cost to other persons in terms of fairness, for example, people who've paid their loans, people who um, don't ha ha have planned their lives around not seeking loans, um, and people who are not eligible for loans in the first place, and that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others. I think that's the nature of their argument, in addition to, as you point out, the cost of the fisc. The, and I didn't see anything in the memorandum that dealt with those kinds of questions. Adrian, I don't know how much you took in of these uh, oral arguments or the coverage thereof. Comment on this case and, and its implications. Well, I think the first thing the court is going to have to figure out is whether or not the people who have filed challenges to student loan forgiveness even have standing to do so, which is something that was hit on by the three liberal justices yesterday during oral, oral arguments, but also by Amy Coney Barrett, interestingly. And so there's potentially four votes that are there that say, we don't, the, these people who have filed the lawsuits, the states in one instance, and then two borrowers in another instance, potentially don't even have standing to bring this case in front of the Supreme Court. Because the first thing you have to prove is that you were somehow injured by this policy. Um, to have standing. And it seemed like four of them are questioning whether or not that even exists. So maybe um, if those four are solidly in that position, there may be an instance where we don't even actually see a decision on this student loan forgiveness program and we have it kicked based on standing instead. In terms of the questions about uh, the student loan forgiveness program, the president is operating and arguing, the Solicitor General argued on behalf of the president that the HEROES Act from 2003 gives the president the power uh, to waive or alter student loans during times of war or um, emergency. And so this, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic falls under this emergency category, they are saying. Whereas the uh, 
conservative group on the court seems to be arguing that this is a major question that needs to then be explicitly decided by Congress instead of just deferring to that law from 2003 that leaves it pretty wide open as to what the president could do. Mm-hmm. As of right now, so, so it if, seems those conservative yeah, majorities ahead. are going to run forward. But again, standing is the first thing that has to be mm-hmm. proven. And so those arguments might end up winning the day. So if there is no standing, uh, determined to be no standing, then the, this Biden administration plan to wipe out these hundreds of billions of dollars in student debt goes forward? It could, but they the court seemed to also note that other institutions like student loan service providers would have standing to file. And so it could be an mm. instance then when we see those service providers file a lawsuit to try to stop this program from going forward. Wayne, you have thoughts on this case? Yeah, very quickly. Uh, clearly, the conservatives on the Supreme Court want to limit presidential power. So if the case gets to substance, it probably goes against the administration. And the question in my mind is whether the conservative justices can figure a way uh, to, uh, to uh, essentially allow the state standing so that to bring the case forward. And I think that's a hard one because it's certainly for states going to be very hard to show that they really do have standing. But we'll have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we're just um, about a year away from the caucuses here in Iowa for the Republican Party. Um, and uh, we have this week the annual conservative activist gathering known as CPAC, uh, the Conservative Political Action Conference, and featuring a list of prospective Republican presidential candidates, uh, though a relatively short list in this uh, year's instance, uh, former President Trump, uh, due to speak, Nikki Haley, uh, those are the big names announced so far. Um, potential contenders like Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, uh, skipping evidently this high-profile conference uh, this uh, week and this weekend in in Maryland. Wayne, thoughts on why CPAC uh, doesn't seem to have the poll it has had for, for, for many years uh, and what it might tell us about the factions within the GOP currently. Well, I think it's indicative of a split that is developing within the Republican Party. And CPAC is much more aligned with the, the very right wing section of the Republican Party. And uh, those who are not comfortable uh, uh, with the right-wing elements in the Republican Party are, are staying out of it. And there um, may be some sense that the electorate is sort of moving in a moderate direction, and some of these candidates who are running as moderates are, are, are moderate Republicans or less conservative Republicans are staying away. Yeah. Adrian, do you see it the same way? Yeah, I do. I think CPAC is one of the lanes within the Republican Party. And so by not attending it, they are trying to create a separate lane to run on when it comes to the primary election. I think also CPAC is very much associated with Trump now. And so some of these candidates or prospective candidates are avoiding that one-on-one showdown. Mm-hmm. Um, we've heard, um, according to New York Times reporting, uh, Ron DeSantis will soon visit Iowa, I think as soon as next week. Uh, he'll also be visiting Nevada, New Hampshire. Um, another sign he will run for president. Uh, he has not officially declared. Uh, 
he's expected to appear here in Iowa. Let's see, according to the New York Times reporting, um, in the next couple of weeks, uh, stops in Davenport and Des Moines, according to that reporting. Now, polls uh, continue to tell us that a majority of potential Republican voters say they would be better off with someone other than Trump on the top of the ticket. Uh, Adrian, you read on this. Uh, I'm sure you've consumed a number of polls uh, for these Republican candidates for 2024. Uh, what are you seeing? Trump, DeSantis, Haley, uh, Pence, all in the mix there. Yeah, I think Trump and DeSantis are the based on the polls that I've been looking at and then the polls that are also considering who would your second choice be, those two are the candidates running at the top of the field. And so DeSantis is making these visits in early primary election states as wrapped up in a book tour um, that he is releasing. And so they aren't technically campaign stops since he hasn't announced his run yet, but they're very quite obviously chosen for specific reasons um, to test the waters of whether or not he could gain the level of support to push past uh, Trump in the election. And as you pointed out, there are a significant number of primary voters who are not on board with seeing Trump run again. And so this leaves it open for DeSantis to create this other base population to vote for him to become that candidate. And that as of now, I think if DeSantis joins the race, it will be largely between him and Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, with your previous reference to political lanes here, so Trump and DeSantis occupying more or less the same political lane? Yes, but also no, um, <laughs> which seems like <laughs> okay. a weird way, weird way to phrase it. They are both very much running hard conservative campaigns. But the way in which they are framing their messaging and the base that they are trying to build is a different set of conservative voters, which is why we see DeSantis not going to CPAC, for example, because he's mm -hmm. looking at building a different set of those conservative voters. And both are assuming Wait. potentially that moderate voters are not enough to provide support for a primary uh candidate to overcome their numbers. Wayne, before we move on to foreign policy in the next segment, we have uh, less than a minute, uh, 30 seconds for you to comment on this, if, if you would do that, please. Well, I add one other variable to this. I think a lot depends on the number of Republican candidates that get into the race. And as the numbers increase, the chances that Trump will get the nomination also increase because he has this hardcore base. And uh, 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 in a lot of primaries, if he gets 30 percent of the vote, for instance, in an election, and a lot of candidates, he may well get the state's votes in the uh, nominating okay. convention. More political analysis to come from Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, Adrian Gathman of Simpson College. Uh, when we c come back, we'll talk about um, some geopolitics, uh, the West Bank, uh, a flare-up in violence there in the Israeli-occupied West Bank can devote quite a bit of time to uh, Ukraine when we come back. Uh, U.S. Secretary, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, ma Yellen making a surprise visit to Ukraine earlier this week. Uh, we'll hear a clip of that and get analysis when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. 
Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's your Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with our analysts this hour, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, Adrian Gathman of Simpson College. Well, let's turn for this final segment of our hour, uh, our eyes abroad, more or less, though it's all connected with our politics as as well, the U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Let's address the latest flare-up of violence in the Israeli-occupied West Bank uh, Monday, Um, It's uh, in the latest in this, uh, a suspected Palestinian gunman killing an Israeli-American motorist in uh, the West Bank after Jewish settlers rampaging through a Palestinian village. Wayne, help us understand what's going on here, why this latest flare-up of violence and, and how you interpret it. Well, it starts with the recent election in Israel, where Netanyahu barely won and has a very right-wing coalition of settlers and ultra-conservatives, which by itself increased tensions with the Palestinians. Then you had an Israeli raid on a Palestinian site, killed 10 or 11 Palestinians. Then the Palestinians responded, killed a few Israelis. And then what, ben, what you just talked about, then, Pal- then Israeli settlers stormed and destroyed Palestinian villages. That's one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that Israel has a major political crisis at home. Netanyahu is trying to, to essentially limit the powers of the Israeli Supreme Court to the extent that the prime minister and parliament can overrule the decisions of the Supreme Court. And the argument is that would remove checks and balances in the Israeli political system. Israel has no constitution, no constitutional checks and balances. Uh, and so you've had huge demonstrations. The country is enormously divided over this. You had something like 100,000 people in the streets uh, protesting this. And now you have military reservists who said that if they're ordered into action after this, if this change in the Supreme Court's power passes, they would regard this as, an, as illegal. So it's a, hmm. a, there's a major crisis. Yeah. How does the Biden administration fit in here? How is um, it trying to influence the Israeli government led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? I think Biden has made it very clear he doesn't want the Supreme Court uh, uh, powers to be overruled. Um, uh, and he's, and I think the Biden administration is doing everything it can to moderate the conflict with the Palestinians. But I think Biden regards it as a very bad move on, uh, on Netanyahu's uh, part to try to change the powers of the Supreme Court. And, uh, and, and you could also see it in terms of supporting Israeli democracy, that if the court's powers are restricted, the checks and balances are reduced. And I, you can see that would be a concern to any American president. Mm-hmm. Let's pivot over to Ukraine. On Monday, our U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made a surprise visit to Ukraine. She reaffirmed America's support for the country and announced further economic aid. Uh, let's listen to a bit of what she had to say in Ukraine on Monday. As we mark one year since the beginning of this full-scale invasion, the message I bring you from President Biden is simple. America will stand with Ukraine.
for as long as it takes. And today I'm proud to announce the transfer of an additional amount of over $1.2 billion. That's the first tranche of about $10 billion in direct budget support that the United States will provide in the coming months. It was a little hard to hear. $1.25 billion announced there by the Treasury Secretary uh, for things in economic aid, things like schools, hospitals, um, and part of a larger uh, package. And Adrian, before I go to, to you to ask how this is, in your view, playing on the, our domestic front, uh, Wayne, tell us uh, about the significance of her visit. It came, comes a week after a surprise appearance in Kiev by President Biden. Uh, what is the administration uh, and, and Janet Yellen doing? Oh, uh, there, there are really two parts to this war, one part of which has gotten most of the publicity. There's the military war. The other part of the war is the collapse of the Ukrainian economy. The military war is going very well, but it's extraordinarily expensive to deal with all the damage which has been caused by Russian missiles and drones, etc., and it's taking an enormous amount of aid. And that's Janet Yellen's area, strengthening the economy, uh, strengthening Ukraine infrastructure, so on and so forth. Uh, and um, and Ukraine can't win the war if, if the economy doesn't survive, uh, but it's, uh, that's going to be very expensive. And Yellen, I think, is a person who is likely better than most others to build the domestic support to keep the aid going, to keep the Ukrainian economy going. Yeah. Uh, back here in the U.S. yesterday, Republicans in Congress, really some severe questioning of senior Pentagon officials about the tens of billions of dollars in the military and other aid uh, the U.S. has already sent to Ukraine. Um, we heard uh, in the news or read reports of uh, these exchanges um, on the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I wonder to you, Adrian, uh, what is your sense of how strong bipartisan consensus is in favor of aid? Uh, is that continuing? Is that shifting? If so, how? Well, I think initially there was bipartisan support for aid and U.S. support of Ukraine as it was. But now with this uh, visit from Biden last week, uh, Yellen's visit this week, and the doubling down on the support that they will provide for Ukraine moving forward, we've seen a clear shift amongst pieces of the Republican Party questioning the um, continued aid and the continued funding and the amounts that are occurring. So it has now set up a new, not bipartisan anymore, um, level of support for Ukraine. Not yeah. all Republicans so the- are pushing back, but there is a significant number that have started and we may see the party start to shift away from this kind of uh, aid to Ukraine. And and possibly also liberal um, anti-war Democrats um, uh, together with the right-wing Republicans. Yeah, we could also see some level of movement there uh, as well amongst those that do not view this as something the U.S. needs to be involved in or just do not view um, military support as the answer to this Um Wayne, over to you. Where do you see this war headed? 
Well, I, I think part of it depends on uh, how on and bu- on building the economic support. And this follows Ye- Ye- Yellen's visit. Um, as the expenses increase, uh, the opposition to the war is likely to increase. And so, to what extent can we mobilize enough support? Can we assure that the money is sufficiently spent? I think that's part of it. Another key variable is, does China come into the war in terms of giving more military aid to Ukraine? And uh, China has not given much or at least obvious military aid at this stage of the game. And to the extent that China then were able increases its military support, then it's going to make it more expensive to defend Ukraine. And then that raises the possibility of increasing dissent in the West. Although the, U- the U.S. and Western Europe is now very much concerned about China, and China's the central focus. So China coming in may actually strengthen support for Ukraine if China does send more aid, uh, military mm-hmm. aid to Ukraine. <clears throat> yeah. Our Secretary of State Blinken has been in the past weeks warning China numerous times not to more actively support Russia's war effort. I wonder, Wayne, if you can help us understand China's position here from their uh, perspective. What's at stake for China? Uh, I think there are a couple of conflicting they're conflicting things here. On one hand, um, uh, uh, President Xi has linked himself very closely with with Russia, the alliance that knows no bounds, I think. And so to some extent, he he wants to keep that relationship going. He'll want Russian support if he if he goes after Taiwan later. On the other hand, China is 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 risking trade relations with European nations uh, by aligning itself with Russia. And so there are, there are economic costs to China of aligning with Russia. And I think President Xi is, is trying to draw a line somewhere, supporting Russia enough, but not antagonizing the Europeans, particularly the Germans, enough that uh, that it will then totally break what has up until now been pretty good relations between European Union countries and China. Mm-hmm. If China does more actively support Russia in its war, um, I, I've read of possible additional U.S. sanctions against China due to their support of, of Russia. Um, how far would it have to go to to have that be a, a serious consideration? Would it happen, do you think, Wayne? Uh, I think it definitely would happen, uh, given the political mood in this country and the very, very strong bipartisan opposition uh, to things that China is doing. Uh, I, I think uh, almost inevitably there would be more sec- more sanctions against China if it increases its aid to, to, uh, to Russia. Mm-hmm. And Wayne, last week... Russian President Putin suspended the last remaining nuclear weapons treaty with the U.S., uh, the New START agreement. What are the implications there for that? How grave is that? Well, some of it is symbolic of uh, decreasing relationship. But uh, I think more worryingly, under the START two, uh, uh, New START agreement, both sides, both Russians and Americans, had the ability to monitor each other's nuclear sites. 
So there was a certain security knowing exactly what the capabilities of your adversary were over time and being able to inspect their sites. Without that agreement, we, we lose this capability on both sides, which then increases the probability that one side or the other will worry about the other side's capabilities and well, you could start a new arms race again. I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, but uh, it is not a good sign in terms of uh, eventually being able to sort of uh, restore or strengthen nuclear stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to, to China's uh, support of, of Russia to the degree that it is right right now. Um, what will you be watching uh, there, uh, Wayne? Has has China given any indication through its statements about how it is weighing this, how it is likely to react to, for instance, Secretary of State Blinken's warnings, uh, our president's warnings about um, not involving itself anymore in this war? Uh, it hasn't said. I haven't seen anything that it said officially. There have been some private Chinese companies. Uh, that have been selling things to 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 Russia. Uh, now uh, the Chinese companies are so closely associated with the government, and so there may be some trial balloons on China's part to see what they can get away with in terms of aiding Russia. But if we start seeing Chinese drones in Ukraine, which we have not seen so far, and Chinese military equipment, then I think it's a new ball game. Mm-hmm. Well, what about? Uh... Vladimir Putin's goals here after a year of war. Um, it's clear Putin's plan put into action just over a year ago has been a disaster for him, uh, far from toppling the Ukrainian government in a matter of days and installing a puppet regime. Uh, it's a, become a protracted uh, a war. Uh, Wayne, what are your thoughts about his goals now? What what might be achievable uh, under the current circumstances in, in Putin's mind? Well, he's, he's, he's between a rock and a hard place. Um, I think his, his only hope is that he can hold out long enough in Ukraine that the West will become disunited and that the support for Ukraine uh, will be weakened and the public in Europe and the United States will lose interest in what's happening in Ukraine at which point, and stop aiding Ukraine, and at which point, because Russia's got more people, it's got more resources, uh, they could kind of overwhelm the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians need that support. And I think, so Putin's playing a waiting game. I, I, I have complete control of my system, and I can stay in as long as I want. And democratic systems don't have that same kind of sustainability. Yeah. Adrian, what are your thoughts on the unity that would be shown here in the U.S. by lawmakers, by our populace here in maintaining a war that is really open-ended in terms of time and in terms of um, resources we're devoting to it? Past research uh, tells us that over time, as things get more expensive or casualties, for example, increase if the U.S. were to send um, actual troops to in aid that public support for these instances uh, significantly drops over that time period. And initially, when you enter into something like this or 
start providing aid for something like this. There's a rally around the flag effect, but that quickly drops down. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing right now. And so as Wayne pointed out, if we see hostilities increase through uh, greater Chinese interaction, for example, that could be something that would again spur a rally around the flag effect here in the US. But as of right now, where it stands, that public opinion in terms of support for this aid is lessening. It took a while for President Zelensky of Ukraine to achieve this, but now tanks from Europe, also the U.S., uh, going into that uh, uh, war theater wane very quickly before we go. Are we going to see the wished-for F-16s go to Zelensky, other fighters, very quickly? I don't know about that, but apparently there was a big tank battle yesterday, and apparently the Ukrainians did very well in the tank battle, and uh, they don't have the new tanks yet, so um, um, I don't know. Maybe maybe the, maybe it'll be enough without the F-16s, but uh, uh, we'll have to see. Okay, Wayne Moyer, thank you of Grinnell College, Adrian Gathman of Simpson College, Wayne and Adrian, we appreciate your thoughts. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks you for ben. having me. River to River, produced today by Caitlin Troutman. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.